Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber White House Farm case podcast. In this episode, we'll explore what we believe actually happened on the night of the shootings at White House Farm. This is presented in a sequence of events in a timeline, which is taken from the evidence that supports Jeremy Bamber's innocence. And all of the information is taken from police logs, statements, and other police material. This timeline supersedes the earlier YouTube video recorded in 2017 and contains additional information that has recently come to light. At some time during the early evening on the 6th of August 1985, June Bamba was due to join a meeting at the local church where she was a warden, but she didn't attend. June hadn't cancelled and it seems that the issues with Sheila might have been a reason as to why she didn't show. Were there problems at home which June had to attend to? At approximately 8pm, Jeremy Bamber took a break from work and went into the farmhouse where his parents, Neville and June Bamber, and his sister, Sheila Caffell, were eating a meal. They were discussing the help that Sheila needed and the possibility of foster care for Sheila's children, Nicholas and Daniel. Jeremy returned to work harvesting rapeseed on the farm. Between 8.45 and 9pm, Jeremy returned to the farmhouse a couple more times during the course of the evening, where the conversation regarding Sheila and the children was still ongoing. On one of these breaks, Jeremy had seen some rabbits close to the house and had taken the 2-2 rifle out from its place in the scullery, where it was sitting on a wooden settle. He'd loaded ammunition, but the rabbits had scattered, and he didn't fire the gun. Jeremy removed the magazine and put it with the rifle onto the wooden settle. Jeremy finished work at 9.30pm and drove his silver Astra to his cottage at Head Street, Goldhanger, about three miles away from the farm. Barbara Wilson, the farm secretary, telephoned Neville at home also about 9.30pm and she recalled he was short with her on this call, which was very unusual for him leaving her feeling she'd interrupted an argument. Neville Bamber was seen collecting the last load of rapeseed out on the farm at 10pm. Pam Beauflin, June's sister, telephoned the farm at 10pm and she spoke to Sheila for approximately two minutes in a statement she later described Sheila as being zombie-like and giving yes and no answers. Pamela also spoke to June who said that Sheila was going to bed. And they went on to discuss Sheila's health. June was worried that Sheila had been acting oddly. Meanwhile, at Head Street, Jeremy made his usual evening call to his girlfriend, Julie Mugford, at 10pm. She later told police she was drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana. And Julie made little sense during this conversation. And after a few minutes, Jeremy ended the call. After relaxing in front of the TV, Jeremy went to bed at 11pm. At approximately 3.15am, Jeremy was woken by a phone call and stumbled downstairs to answer a call from his father, who said, come over quickly, and that Sheila had gone crazy and had the gun. The line then went dead. Immediately, Jeremy tried to call his father back, but got the engaged tone and over the course of the next few minutes made several attempts to call his dad back. 
but the line remained engaged. PC West at Witham Police Station telephoned civilian operator Malcolm Bonnet on the internal police line to relay information that he'd just received a telephone call from Neville Bamba at 3.26am. Neville stated that his daughter Sheila Bamba, aged 26, had gone berserk and had hold of one of his guns. At 3.30, Jeremy telephoned his girlfriend Julie Mugford and told her that there was something wrong at the farm. Unconcerned, she advised Jeremy to go back to bed. At 3.33am, Malcolm Bonnet contacted PC Saxby at Witham Police Station over the radio. And along with PC Mile and PS Buse, PC Saxby was instructed to attend the scene. Following the radio message to PC Saxby, Malcolm Bonnet recorded on his log at 3.35am that car CAO7 containing Buse, Saxby and Mile had been instructed to attend. A second car, CAO5, was dispatched to the scene containing PC Norcup and PC Cracknell at 3.36am. They'd been in the control room at Witham with PC West when he received Neville Bamber's call. By 3.36am, concerned that he couldn't get his father back on the phone, Jeremy made a call to Chelmsford Police Station and spoke to PC West, informing him that his father had rang and said his sister had gone crazy and had hold of the gun. PC West spoke on the internal telephone line to PC Saxby, who was preparing to leave Witham Police Station at 3.37. This was following the instruction from Malcolm Bonnet to attend the reported incident. PC Mile recalled that as PC West was speaking to PC Saxby, Jeremy Bamber was still on the other phone line to PC West. During the trial, PC West informed the jury that he spoke to Saxby within a minute of receiving the call from Jeremy, thereby confirming that Jeremy Bamber's call was at 3.36am. And this is the second piece of evidence which supports Jeremy Bamber's call made later at 3.36 and not 3.26 as the prosecution would have us believe. According to his statement at 3.38, after talking to the police at Whitham, PC West asked Jeremy if he could meet the officers at the farm and Jeremy agreed. PC West attempted to telephone White House Farm at 3.41 but found that the line was engaged, just as Jeremy had stated when he tried to call Neville back. Jeremy left his cottage at 3.42, setting off in his car towards White House Farm, as PC West had instructed him to do a few minutes earlier. PC West, who was in the control room, contacted British Telecom at 3.42 and spoke to their operative, Jean Rowe, asking her to check the telephone line at White House Farm. Jean Rowe informed West that the phone was actually off the hook. En route to White House Farm, at 3.45 approximately, Jeremy was passed by the police car with blue lights flashing, which contained PCs Mile and Saxby, together with PS Buse, 
arrived at Pages Lane at 3.48 and parked at the entrance of the lane to await the arrival of Jeremy. Jeremy Bamber arrived in his Silver Astra at approximately 3.50. He spoke to the police officers and after a brief discussion, they all drove closer to the farm. It is also at this time that a police log is attributed to PC Bachelor, although curiously, PC Bachelor did not arrive at the scene until 4.25am. The police in attendance decided to undertake a recce of the farmhouse at 3.55 and PS Buse and PC Mile were accompanied by Jeremy. During this reconnaissance, PC Mile said that he had seen movement in a bedroom window and alerted Buse and Jeremy, who both saw the movement too. The trio had initially ducked down behind a hedge for cover before running back to the safety of the waiting police car on Pages Lane. During 2011, P.S. Buse gave another televised interview in which he mentions the same movement, although this time he states it was P.C. Mile who drew their attention to it. As we go round, Steve Mile says, oh, hang on, stop, I think I saw someone move. And we look up and I said, where? And he said, that window up there. And he's indicating as if we're looking at the back of the building, top right. So, first floor, on the right-hand side. This statement was broadcast on national television and confirms that this was a figure of a person that was seen and not a trick of the light or a shadow. This evidence indicates that the curtains were open at this point. Between 4am and 4.04am, upon reaching the security of the police vehicle, P.S. Buse immediately radioed through a situation report to headquarters information room and requested firearms assistance, which PC Saxby confirmed in a witness statement. The situation report made by P.S. Buse regarding the movement seen in the window has never been disclosed to the defence. At 4.04am, members of the firearms unit stood down from the duties they were conducting at the time and were instructed to prepare to draw firearms in relation to a shooting incident at White House Farm. P.S. Buse conducted two more cautious recce's of the house, recorded at 4.09, and upon seeing no further movement, he reported that there were no signs of life in the house, and also it was recorded that all lights were on. Chief Superintendent Harris instructed officers to attend the scene and gave authority for the police to collect firearms recorded at 4.17am. The decision was endorsed by Assistant Chief Constable Mr Simpson. PCs Norcarp and Cracknell eventually arrived at the scene at 4.22, and seemingly they'd not rushed. This 17-mile journey, which should have taken 35 minutes maximum within the speed limits, had actually taken them 45 minutes. Another car, CAO6 with officers PC Lay and Bachelor, was also requested to attend at this time. At 4.23am, officers PC Lay and PC Bachelor arrived. Owing to their promptness in arriving, it can only be assumed the officers were already on the way to the scene prior to being formally requested to attend just one minute prior to arrival. At 4.31, car CAO6 with PC's Bachelor and Lay left the scene to meet with the firearms units in Tiptree to escort them to the farm. 
car CAO6 had met the firearms teams at 4.52 and escorted them back to the farm. And at 4.58am, two police transit vehicles arrived at the scene containing nine firearms officers and vehicle QZ50 also arrived containing PC Mercer and the dock unit. The firearms officers took up positions with guns drawn to cover the house within moments of arrival. And at 5.18, PC Mile was instructed to keep Jeremy away from the house at a distance of at least 400 yards. The firearms team are recorded as being in conversation with someone from inside the farm at 5.25am. And Jeremy was asked what they could say to Sheila to engage her in conversation. By 5.29, the conversation had now ceased and there was no response to challenges made to the person within the house. At 5.34, the police asked Jeremy if they could contact anyone for him to talk to. Jeremy said he would like to telephone his girlfriend, Julie Mugford, and PC Lay drove him to a public phone box so he could call her. The open telephone line in the house was checked again at 5.42, and the phone was reported to have been engaged. This contradicts the information received from the BT operator at 3.42 who had stated that the phone was off the hook. These different tones indicated the different state of the phone. At 5.43, Jeremy returned to the scene after making his phone call to Julie Mugford and waited in a police car on Pages Lane. PC Mile started a handwritten log at 5.50am which has been disclosed but inaccurately attributed to PC Saxby. PC Mile told the 1986 post-trial Dickinson investigation that he drove car CAO7 into the farmyard and began this log, known as Log 12. At 5.50, Essex police say that they asked for the open phone line at the farm to be connected to the 999 line so that they could listen in. But the operator, Jean Rowe, said in a statement that she could not do this because she was not permitted to tie up the emergency line. Instead, she connected the line to an internal police number and it was continually monitored. However, evidence now shows that the connection between the farm and the police internal line must have ended shortly before 6.09am when a 999 emergency call was recorded as having been made from the house. Police car CG32 arrived at 6.15, containing two more officers, PC Chapman, WPC Dixon, who came from Witham Police Station. By 6.20, a request was made for two ambulances to attend the scene, one for immediate use and one for standby purposes. Essex Police and the firearms team did not explain what had changed and prompted them to make this request for ambulances. And it can only be assumed that this was owing to the 999 call received from within the farmhouse just minutes before. Essex Police have never explained why, prior to this, ambulances had not been requested at any time. At 6.42, Ten more firearms officers, including Inspector Montgomery, arrive at the scene in two police transit vehicles. Call signs QK23 and QK24 
Chief Inspector Clark arrived at the farm with his driver at 6.44am and at 7am the lights in the main bedroom window previously reported as being turned on were now turned off and the curtains in the room were now closed. Following this, two ambulances arrived at the scene at 7.02 with four crew members. Chief Superintendent Harris and his driver arrived at the scene at 7.05 in car CAO2 and car CG10 containing Chief Inspector Gibbons and PC Panting arrived at White House Farm at 7.08. By 7.15, the light in the main bedroom was now back on. Police vehicles were by now increasing in numbers, with more arriving at the scene every few minutes. Two FSU officers reported they had seen a rifle in the window of a room adjacent to the master bedroom, and this was recorded between 7 and 7.30. These officers weren't standing together, but at different vantage points. One of these was firearms officer and instructor Julia Jeeps, but when she was asked about the sighting of a gun, it was later brushed off. Here's what she said on the matter when recently asked. In relation to your request, I'm not prepared to respond to your request for information. The case has been subject to numerous reviews and appeals. These have studied in detail the events and actions that took place. I have nothing to add. The second officer, who had seen the same firearm, later explained in his statement that he was told it was merely a vacuum cleaner hose. It is indeed amazing how two experienced firearms officers couldn't tell the difference between a rifle and a vacuum cleaner. Using stealth tactics, it was decided to gain entry to the house at 7.34. Remarkably, stealth tactics consisted of smashing down the back door using a sledgehammer. Also, at 7.34, PC Collins reported passing the back door together with PC Delgado and Collins looked into the kitchen via a window to the right of the door. The light was on and the curtains were open. There were no nets, so he had a clear view of the kitchen. He initially reported that he saw the body of what he thought was a woman in the kitchen. This was later said to be a mistake as the body in the kitchen was that of Neville Bamber. PC Collins then returned to the door and reported the key was in the lock on the inside. Upon gaining entry to the kitchen, the raid team reported at 7.34 that one dead male, one dead female were found on entry of premises. And this was duly recorded on both the police logs and on a police communication log written by Inspector Norman. At 7.35, the raid team then proceeded to search the remainder of the ground floor. PC Hall, a member of the raid team, gave evidence that at 7.37, I immediately heard a noise upstairs and began to challenge up the stairs I was covering. I was calling to Sheila Bamba to make her whereabouts known to me. At 7.43, a coroner's officer, PC Wright, was informed of fatalities and was requested to attend. The order was given to stop recording and monitoring the open telephone line at 7.47 and the police officers who were performing this task were requested to attend the scene. At 7.48, a request was made for a detective, chief inspector and a doctor to examine two bodies, not five, which indicates that two were found downstairs and three upstairs and not, as the police would have us believe, 
one downstairs and four upstairs. The upper floor had been searched and it was recorded that three further bodies had been discovered at 8.09. The raid team wore open microphones, yet none of the recordings have ever been disclosed to the defence, perhaps because the true sequence of events would have been revealed, and perhaps the sound of Sheila moving from the kitchen to the bedroom. At 8.20, Assistant Chief Constable Simpson requested to speak to DCI Harris on a landline. DCI Harris called him using the kitchen telephone from within the farm, a fact that was later denied at the 2002 appeal of Jeremy Bamba. The police surgeon, Dr Craig, arrived at the scene at 8.25 to confirm the deaths, and at 8.26, DCI Jones and DI Miller asked to go to the scene. At 8.43am, the decision was made not to tell the press anything and that a formal press conference would be held later in the morning. PC Chaplin started keeping two logs at 8.40. One of these was recording who went in and out of the back door at White House Farm. This is separate to the log noted at 4am in relation to Saxby. PC Shoulders kept a log at the front door of the house recording who entered and left. Neither log has been disclosed. At 8.45, Dr Craig, Chief Superintendent Harris, PC Wright, the coroner's officer, and Chief Inspector Gibbons all state that Sheila had a single gunshot wound when they saw her, and not two gunshot injuries, as shown in the crime scene photographs. In subsequent statements, D.S. Stan Jones and D.I. Miller also say they only saw one wound on Sheila when they first saw her at the scene. P.C. Watson and P.C. Cummings attended the scene in car CA04 at 8.50. The reason for their presence is unknown and no witness statements were ever made by them. At 8.51, Dr. Craig saw Jeremy and advised him that his family had died. Jeremy was offered whiskey, which he accepted. D.I. Cook and D.C. Bird arrived in car CP03. Shortly after, Jeremy was driven home to Head Street in his own car by the police. Six further firearms officers arrived at the scene at 9am. Essex police claimed to have called them to keep the press at bay. However, informatives, training exercises were noted in the radio logs. Scenes of crime officers waiting to carry out forensic work were not allowed into the house after they arrived at 9.16 and they had to wait 44 minutes until 10am. At 9.14, DCI Jones and DC Clark arrived. Further, CID officers DC Henderson, DI Miller, DS Jones and DS Davidson arrived at the scene. Essex police maintain it was DC Hammersley and not DC Henderson who attended. So who was the mysterious DC Henderson who never featured in the case? Is this because when Jeremy Bamber was charged with murder that DC Henderson wouldn't go along with this theory because he knew that Sheila Caffell had killed the family? Or was he the officer who accidentally shot Sheila after her death? At 9.30, D.I. Miller described Sheila as having been found with a rifle by her right side and not with the rifle across her body as seen in the crime scene photographs taken after 10am. PC Chaplin ceases keeping his record at 9.56, stating, 
I was instructed by someone, don't know who, to stop recording who was entering the house as officers were by then using two entrances, but the lists, which were kept up to date to this time, of those who entered the house have not been disclosed. The police photographer began to take crime scene photographs at 10am. It is noticeable that photographs of the main bedroom show the curtains are open, as the police deny touching anything. It is therefore likely that they were opened before the police entered the house. By 10.20am, seven crime scene photographs show Sheila's body with her hand and the gun in different positions. In one, the gun is on Sheila's body, but another, taken just minutes later, as the photographer moved down the stairs, shows the gun resting in the window when it should still have been on Sheila's body at 11.10am, according to D.I. Cook. At 10.50, PC Bird completed taking the photographs of the interior of the scene and the bodies were placed into bags in readiness for removal from the scene to the mortuary. Another odd discrepancy in the police records is that at 11.10am, Acting Police Sergeant Woodcock now removed the gun from Sheila's body for the first time. At 2.15 in the afternoon, PC Chaplin's second log finishes and the log added to by the relief radio operator from 5.42 comes to an end at 3.50pm. PC Shoulders takes over the log at the scene but the person who operated the radio up until 3.50 in the afternoon never made a statement for Jeremy's trial. It was simply assumed that Malcolm Bonnet, the civilian radio operator, monitored the radio throughout the incident, but he didn't inform the jury that he went off duty at 5.40 that morning and couldn't be the author of the log made after 5.40am. Prior to 8pm, DS Jones and DC Clark requested that Jeremy sign a letter of authorisation to allow the police to burn blood-stained items, including carpets. Thanks for listening, and in our next episode, you'll hear how the trial jury was misled over the evidence of the sound moderator, also referred to as a silencer. They believed that only a single silencer featured in the case, but this wasn't true. They were also told that the blood inside it came from Sheila Caffell only, but they didn't know that one of the estate beneficiaries, Robert Bowflower, who testified against Jeremy Bamber and was present when the silencer was found, also had the same blood group. <laughs>